0: Hi, everybody. I'm Alana Stein. welcome back to Din and Daf, where we do some conceptualizing of halacha through a case study. Our case study today is Ma'ase Shabbat, when a Jew violates Shabbos and is interested in using the object that was changed or formed through their violation of Shabbos, or another Jew is interested in using that object, right? Let's say I cooked something on Shabbos. God forbid I violated Shabbos. So that's our kind of case. And it comes up in Bava Kama, Ein Aleph, Amid Aleph. And the question essentially is, can you allow people to use things that were created, forged through a violation of Shabbos? And of course, the idea is we want to deter people from violating Shabbos. And or you might even think the object itself has some element of You know, just being forbidden. It's not. It's not just a deterrence uh, to keep people from violating Shabbos, but it's actually the item itself has some, you know, almost kedusha in sort of a negative way. It was created through violation of Shabbos. Don't touch that. Don't go near that. But either way, what's interesting is that in the discussion, or one of the things that's interesting is that in the discussion of this question. What we see when we look at different sources around Shas and even in the Yerushalmi, especially in the Yerushalmi, I should say, is we find that the decision about whether to be lenient or to be strict about allowing people to use something that was forged through Shabbos violation is not just a simple matter of, well, halachically, technically, what is permitted or forbidden It seems that Chazal, at least some rabbis, also take into account: if we paskin one way, will that lead people to be too lenient about Shabbos to try to exploit what we say? Should there be certain people where we paskin more strictly? to keep them from exploiting a leniency or from being lax with Shabbos. And I really like this issue because I think it takes into account a big question about law. How much does law think about the people whose lives are shaped by it? and what those people are likely to do or not to do in response to a law, how those people are likely to react, whether it's realistic that the standards that are set will actually be maintained, and how much do you take that into account? So I think it's a great meta-halachic question. So let's jump in, starting with bava kama ayin alef ambad where we do see three approaches to what do you do about Masa Shabbat, meaning the item that was created or forged through the violation of Shabbos, who, which Jews, if any, uh, would be permitted to use it and when. So I'm going to share my screen. Let's see. So it goes like this. Ditnan, as we learn in a Mishnah, and the truth is, the Mishnah doesn't have all of this. It only has part of this. It's actually a Brighta that has all of what we're about to see. But Ditnan, one who cooks on Shabbos, of course, a violation of Torah law. Bishogeg Yochal, if they did so unwittingly, they didn't know it was Shabbos, they didn't know it was us or to cook, one or the other. Yochal, they can eat it even on Shabbos. Very lenient. But if they did it on purpose, they knew it was Shabbos. They knew this was Asr. They cannot eat from it. And Rashi explains on Shabbos, they can't eat from it, nor can anyone else. But after Shabbos, they can, and so can other people. This is Rabbi Mayer's approach. Pretty lenient, actually, right? Doesn't make this thing totally verboten. Even if it's bishogeg, you can even eat it on Shabbos. Even the person who violated Shabbos, if it's bemazed, it's true. Nobody can use it on Shabbos. No Jew can use it on Shabbos. But after Shabbos, anyone can use it, including the person who violated Shabbos. It's pretty lenient. Rabbi Yehuda goes one step stricter. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, he says, bishogeg Yochal B'motei e Shabbat. He says, listen, you do it by accident, meaning you don't know it's Shabbos. You didn't know it was usher to cook. You can't use it on Shabbos but you can use it after Shabbos, okay? You can use it after Shabbos, as can others, said Rashi. Rashi also says others can't use it on Shabbos either, right? Rabbi Yudah doesn't want it used on Shabbos. But B'meizid, if you did it on purpose, nah. A loyal to the person who did the violation, should never eat it, can never eat it. I mean, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? Whether this is a matter of deterrence or it's a matter of the item itself just becomes verboten because Shabbos, Malacha, was done with it. The person who violated Shabbos, you're not going to let them eat something that they purposely violated Shabbos to make. Other people, once it's Motzei Shabbos, other people can eat it. We're not going to let it go to waste, but not the person themselves. Rabbi Yochanan Hassanlar, he is the most strict. Rabbi Yochanan Hassanlar, no, 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 no. if it's, the shokig, the person who violated Shabbos, even though it was a shokig, will never eat this item. After Shabbos, other Jews can eat it. The person who cooked it cannot eat it. Rabbi Yochanan Sanlar does not want a person who violated Shabbos, even unwittingly, ever eating from the result of that violation. And B'mezid, if a person did it on purpose, forget it. Nobody's going to eat it ever. Not themselves and not somebody else, right? So you can see we have like a real spectrum here. So as you're listening to this, I wonder if you think to yourself, like I would passkin like Rabbi Meir. I would pasken like Rabbi Huda, I would pasken like Rabbi Ochanan Asamblar. Because the truth is there's a lot of logic to each of them. There really is a lot of logic to each of them. But it's interesting to note that once we get to the Yerushalmi, we're going to see that there was, you know, it wasn't just the sort of like bottom line halacha, or I I don't know how to say it. It wasn't the bottom line, you know, strict letter of the law that helps some of Chazal, some among Chazal make a decision who to follow. It's also thinking, how are the people who we tell this to going to act as a result? But before we get to seeing that sort of meta-halachic, um, uh, thought process that they have. I want to note that when you look in Tanaitic literature, meaning when you look in the layer of Mishnayot, or you look in the Tosefta, companion piece to the Mishnah, right? meaning they are parallels around the same time um, and contain a lot of the same material, but also different material. When you look in the Mishnayot that talk about masseh Shabbat, it sounds like Rabbi Meir is the stump. Rabbi Meir is the basic anonymous default. When you look in the Tosefta, it sounds like Rabbi Yehuda is the basic anonymous default. And let's take a look. So the Mishnah in Shrumot has part of what was quoted in Kama, but not with Rabbi Meir by name. HaMe'aser, somebody who tithes, meaning gives a tenth of their produce, separates a tenth of their produce, right? Or by the way, gives Truma, separates Truma for the Kohain, Right? Maser for the Levi, Truma for the Kohain. What's wrong with doing that on Shabbos? It's essentially repairing the rest of the food that it's part of. It can't, that food isn't allowed to be eaten until Maser is taken or Truma is taken. So you're mitaken or mitakenet on Shabbat. You're repairing something on Shabbat. So you're not allowed to do it. But let's say you did, right? Someone is maser or mivashel or cooked. Bishabbat on Shabbos, shogeg yochal. If they did it unwittingly, they may eat from it, presumably on Shabbos itself. Lo Yochal. If they did it on purpose, they they shouldn't eat from it again. Presumably on Shabbos. This sounds very. It sounds like Rabbi Meir, right? It doesn't say Rabbi Meir's name, but it sounds like Rabbi Mayer. And even um, more surprising, I would say, is the Mishnah in Hulin, which seems to indicate that if you violate Shabbos even on purpose, you yourself, the violator. Will at some point be able to partake of that Maase Shabbat, which is it's Rabbi Meir. Let's take a look. It says, Shabbat Yom somebody who slaughters an animal on Shabbos and Yom Kipur, afal pishim Even though the person is now causing themselves to have to get the death penalty, meaning they did it on purpose, you don't get the death penalty if you do something in Shogeg. It's they did it on purpose. Shritatok The shritat is kosher, right? The shritat is kosher." So who's the only person of the three? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Yochanan Asamblar, who would say that in a case of mazid, this thing would be kosher, meaning it could be eaten by the violator and by other people. It's only Rabbi Meir. Yeah, you have to wait till after Shabbos, or after Yom Kippur, obviously. But sounds like Rabbi Meir, right? Again, his name is not here, but that's what it sounds like. So it sounds like the Mishnah, when you look in Shas Mishnayot, it sounds like the Netiyah, the sort of leaning is towards a more mekel Rabbi Meir. Not as much when you look at the Tosefta. Now the Tosefta actually in Shabbos does record um, our whole conversation that was in Bavakama and then some actually, but it's anonymous. Some of its anonymous statements sound like Rabbi Huda. Take a look. Ha-Sholchei B'Shabos somebody who slaughters an animal on Shabbos unwittingly, right? Parallel to this Mishnah in Chulin, but a little bit different. It's not Yom Kippur. And here it says it's Shogig, right? What happens? Yochal HaMotei Shabbat. They can eat it on Saturday night. It's Rabbi Yehuda. And B'mezid, if they did it on purpose, lo Yochal, they can't even eat it Saturday night, right? This is Rabbi Yehuda. This is Rabbi Yehuda. Fine. So we have Mishnah looking very makeo. Tosefta looking a little bit more machmir, but by the way, we haven't seen a representation in any anonymous statement in the Sifrut Tana'it in Tana'itic literature that's as machmir as Rabbi Yochanan HaSandlar, right? But wait for it, here comes the Yerushalmi because Rav, Rav likes Rabbi Yochanan HaSandlar and we're going to see why. So Rav, the Babylonian, i when he was teaching his students, meaning when he was ruling for his students, right? More is also Hora. He's ruling for his students. He ruled like Rabbi Mayer. He ruled the most naked, right? But bitzibure, but in public, who do you rule like? Rabbi Yochanan Assembler, the most machmir. Isn't that interesting? It's like he's taking into account who he's talking to. When I'm talking to my students who I know are very machmir on Shabbos observance, they are gonna be very careful. I say to them, look, you'd be lenient like Rabbi Mayer, because that's who I really think the halacha follows. But when I'm talking in public, and I don't know who's listening to me, and whether they're lax on Shabbos or not lax on Shabbos, I'm going to go with the most machmir to keep them from violating Shabbos and to let them know whether it's beshokik or b'meisik, you're never going to get to use it. So don't bother. Be more careful, right? So a disparity between you know public policy, right? It's better public policy to say follow Rabbi Yochanan Asamlar and private dispensations. But then the conversation continues in the Rishalmi, where people say they're curious, like let's talk a talk to a chacham Eretz Israeli, right? Let's talk to Rabbi Yochanan and ask him if he does that same thing. You know, paskins one way like this and another way like that, depending on who he's talking to, or depending on whether we're talking public policy or private dispensation. kome So they asked in front of Rabbi Yochanan, "Atma at Amar, what do you say? Do you also, you know, do this sort of, you know, in private this, in public that, or public policy this, private dispensation that?" Amar he says. I follow the Mishnah, which as we said, looks like Rabbi Meir. Somebody who tithes or cooks on Shabbos, if it was unwitting, they can eat it even on Shabbos. If it was purposeful, they cannot eat it on Shabbos, but on Motei Shabbos, they can. Meaning, I'm not I, I, I'm not going to distinguish depending on who I'm talking to and who I'm not talking to. This is how I posket. Okay, i like Rabbi Meir, and it's Mekel. So Rav Christi hears this, and Rav Christi is Babylonian, I'm too. Shama Rav, Christi, uh, v- Vimar. Rav hears this and says, What are you doing? You're literally, it's like, um, you know, we say something is Hutra. it's like, now everything is permissible. You, you have literally untied, like, lahatir is literally to untie, right? Like, matir asurim, to untie those who are tied up um, to release prisoners. You have untied Chavis, meaning you have literally just allowed Chavis to be completely putra, like anything goes. And he explains why. I mean, he's, it's not like he's saying anything goes, but he's following Rabbi Meir. He says, well, lo chen ravuna, b'shem rav. Didn't Ravuna say this in the name of rav? V'tani, Rabbi Chia and Rabbi Chia also said the following, and he's going to tell us what the following is, but I want to give us a little bit of a pre- a, a, a um, sort of like a preamble to it. The case that they're about to talk about is not a case of cooking on Shabbos. It's a slightly different case. It's a case of leaving something on the stovetop before Shabbos, until Shabbos comes in. Now, I want to clarify this. This is really important. It's an important area of halacha. And for those who learned Gemara Shabbos in Yomi, the third parak of Shabbos talks about this, parak hakira. The, um, this issue is rabbinically, we are not permitted to leave food on the stovetop before Shabbos into Shabbos, unless any of the following are true, unless the food is already edible and a discussion of what it means it's cooked until it's edible To what degree does it have to be halfway cooked, a third way cooked, completely cooked? That's not my issue right now. But the point is it has to be already cooked to the point that it's edible or it has to be completely, completely raw. Or even if it's not cooked to be edible and not completely raw, the fire source, the heating element and the switch that moves it have to be covered. Now, this is because, and again, this is not our issue. It's just to give us a sense of what we're about to read. This is because Chazal did not want people on Shabbos to want to speed up the cooking process. So they would start poking at the coals on Shabbos, thereby violating Shabbos in order to get the thing to cook faster. So if it's already edible, no one's gonna be worried about doing that, right? They're not gonna need to cook anymore. It's already edible, it's fine. If it's completely raw, even poking at the uh, holes is not gonna do anything. So people aren't going to be um, enticed to do that. They'll just wait until it'll slow cook and that's what it is, it's a slow cook. Or if the heating element is covered and whatever it is that sort of controls the heating element, at least in our day, right? They're also going to realize, okay, I'm not going to move the coals. But the point is the example that we're about to see where Rav Chista says from that example, we see that it isn't just what is the straight bottom line halacha, but it's how do we think people will behave? The example is not from cooking on Shabbos. The example is from leaving something on the stovetop before Shabbos. Okay. With that preamble, let's get into it. So it goes like this. Barishonah. Originally, Hayu Omrim, they used to say, meaning they used to rule the following way. If somebody forgets their cooking dish, meaning the dish that's cooking, the food that's cooking, on their stovetop as Shabbos comes in, right? if it was an accident, they can eat, right? Sounds like Rabbi Meir. They can eat the food on Shabbos. But Bimezid, if they did it on purpose, lo yuchal. they shouldn't eat it on Shabbos. Still, Rabbi Meir. That, says Rav Christa, that was Barishonah. That was at the beginning. But then what did they see? Nechshidun, the people were suspected of what? Shehayum menichin mezidin. They would purposely put their food on the stovetop right before Shabbos. And they would say, hayinu. oops, it was an accident. Oops. They were dishonest. And therefore, v'asru therefore, the rabbis changed their ruling. They said, no, even somebody who forgets that dish on the stovetop before Shabbos, they can't eat it on Shabbos, right? And this Rav that's what he wants to see his rabbis doing. He wants to see them being extra machmir so that people don't pretend, oh, I did a show gig when they really did a b'mezi. So don't be lenient when they do a show gig because if you're lenient when they do a show gig, even when they're b'mezi, they'll pretend they did a show gig. People lie. That's what people do. By the way, people lie to themselves, right? So he says, and use to Rabbi You're going to be so makel on Mevashel b'Shabbes, I mean, this was even they were just leaving the food on from before Shabbos, and you're going to be making even in Mevashel b'Shabbes, right? Now he doesn't say it, but I'm thinking to myself, leaving food on before Shabbos—that's only an Isser Bish on Shabbos—that's an Isser right? Cooking on Shabbos. So Rav Chista is scandalized. He's like Rabbi Yochanan, why don't you want to be more careful? Don't give people an out that if they did something with shogig, they can eat on shops. Don't follow Rabbi Meir. They'll lie. They'll say everything with show shogig, right? So what does Rabbi Yochanan say? Actually, Rabbi Yochanan doesn't say anything. <laughs> Rabbi Hilah says something. And Rabbi Hilah, it's so interesting. The answer could have been, look, I don't take into account what people do or not do. I'm poskining how I'm poskining based on what the halacha should be. And I trust that everybody, you know, is going to be honest, maybe. Or maybe I don't trust, or maybe I just don't think about it at all, right? But Rafi Lanz doesn't say any of that, right? He doesn't say, oh, we trust people implicitly. He also doesn't say, well, you know, you can't paskan al-lacha based on bad actors. He doesn't say either of those. Instead, he says, oh, no, no, it's totally right. In the case of leaving something on the stove beforehand, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are totally suspected about that. But in the case of Bishel, they actually won't do that, right? Take a look. I'm a rabbi Hila. I'm actually going to make it a little bit higher. I'm a rabbi Hila. Rabbi Hila says, Nech Liot Manithin. People are suspected or were suspected of being willing to leave something on the stovetop before Shabbos against the rabbinic decree of doing so. But they didn't think that people would, they didn't think that people would cook on shops against the biblical prohibition. And therefore, they gave a penalty to the people when it comes to leaving something on the stovetop. That even if you say you did it because we don't really believe you and we think people will lie and say they did it, bishoogig. You still can't eat the food on Shabbos. But Velokan Subim Vashel, when it comes to Bishol, they did not give such a penalty. They did not assume that if somebody said, I did this Shogik, I did this by accident, meaning I didn't know Shabbos or I didn't know usur us, to cook on Shabbos. We believe them. We don't think people would lie about that. We don't think people would violate a dual right to like that and lie about that. And what's interesting is that Rabbi Lah is not just saying something in the abstract, he's actually saying like that particular example that Rafista was quoting, you know, and saying to Rabbi Yochanan, how could you be so lenient? I mean, look at the situation where they were noticing that people were suspected of leaving something on the stovetop before Shabbos. And so they changed their ruling to be more machmir. And Rabbi Hila says, yeah, that was only about people putting things on the stovetop. It wasn't about violating Shabbos. It wasn't about Cooking things on Shabbos. It was about leaving something on the stovetop before Shabbos into Shabbos that could maybe result in somebody stoking at coals, right? Which is different. These are two different things. And you could argue that in some ways, what it's saying is we don't assume that people are going to violate a door right down, lie about it, or at least an Issur Shabbos door right down, lie about it. An Issur to maybe, but not an Isser Shabbos. Or you could put it a little differently, even if they're not in their minds distinguishing between a dura and a dura. You might say, look, I can understand somebody Friday afternoon, they left something on. Just, I did it on purpose, I did it by mistake. They're gonna vow, um, you know, find some justification. But who would lie about straight up putting food on a, a, a on a stovetop on shops? Nobody's gonna do that. People have limits. They might not even think in categories of De Rabbonin and De Areita, but they're thinking of before Shabbos and on Shabbos. People know, right? So that's kind of an interesting next step in this conversation. Are there places where we don't trust people and places where we do trust people? Are there things that we think people would be willing to violate and things that they wouldn't be willing to violate, right? So, so far in our question of how much does halacha take into account people's human proclivities to maybe be dishonest, to maybe exploit, to maybe try to get a little bit extra. It seems like Rav, who said in the privacy of his own group of students, he would teach them Rabbi Meir, but in public, he would teach Rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan HaSandlar. In private, he was lenient. Public policy, he was strict. Sounds like he was basically saying, I know the people. And when I know these people, I can tell them this. And when I'm talking to the world here, and I don't know everybody in every situation, I'm going to be a little more cautious and circumspect. Then we have this example with Rav Hila, which is his way of explaining Rabbi Yochanan, which is, look, there are certain things about which the average person might be a little dishonest. But there are certain things where we assume that the average person is completely honest. And so it's less about, is it this person who I'm talking to or that person who, who I'm talking to? And it's more about, well, what is the issue in question? I don't think people are dishonest about everything. I don't think people are exploitative about everything. Some things, yes, some things, no. Now, when you look at the Bavli and Hulin, and with this, we're going to end, you find a third approach. And, you know, these are all connected to each other, of course, right? Is it these people or those people? Is it the um, uh, this this violation or that violation, right? And the Bavli and on Ted Vav, it also has a version of, is it this people or those people? But instead of it being what I teach my students versus what I say to the Tzibor, there's a different kind of concern here. Which is a concern that comes up in various ways in the Bavli. didn't Rav Hanan bar Ami say when Rav taught his students right. This is a, it's a different version of what we saw in the Rishami. Mori he would rule to them like Rabbi Meir the most mekil. But and when he but when he would teach in the public teaching session on Shabbos. Darishka Rabbi Yehuda. He would teach like Rabbi Yehuda a little bit more machmir. Now notice, it's not Rabbi Yochanan Asamblar, the most machmir, but it's a little bit more machmir, right? So why is this that he would do that? And the Gemara answer is, Mishum Ameha Haaretz. Because of, I've defined, I've I've used the term the hoi poloi here. Ameha Haaretz, however, are not just the hoi poloi. They're not just the public. They are particular people in the worldview of Chazal and especially Babylonian uh, Amoraim who are known to be lax on halacha. Perhaps they don't always give their ma'asir. Uh, Perhaps they don't do the mitzvah of wearing tefillin. Perhaps they don't say kriya shema. perhaps Perhaps um, they don't um, serve talmidei chachamim. So they don't find out how people practice. They just have sort of the on the books, quote unquote, not that there were too many books then, but on the books. But the point is, there's a particular group of people who supposedly Rav is looking at and saying, I want these people to think that we're more Mahmir on this, right? It's going to keep them from becoming more makeup. Now, I look at this as a little bit different than just what he taught in public versus what he taught in private or how he ruled in public versus how he ruled in private. Because when I see, see that there's a particular group of people, the Ameha Haaretz, which is a particular group of people who he has in mind. I wonder if that's a group that's, you know, more of a subset um, of the Tibor and actually he's, he has more grounding to think that they're going to be lax, right? Cause he knows that they are. Right, that's, that's how they're known already. So it's kind of an interesting thing. What I think is great is that for the most part, Halachah uh, follows Rabbi Yehuda. follows Rabbi Yehuda. There are a few people, the, the Vilna Gon and their Baliatos vote who like Rabbi Mayer, But for the most part, it's Rabbi Yehuda, the middle of the road. And I just think it's wonderful to see that um, even though the Mishnayot in their anonymous layer, Rabbi Meir, sound like Rabbi Mayer, even though Rav wanted to paskin or would paskin privately like Rabbi Mayer, even though Rabbi Yochanan wanted us to follow Rabbi Meir, even so, we paskin like Rabbi Yehuda. The Bavli tries to read the Mishnah in Hulin, Aleph Aleph, like Rabbi Yehuda. And perhaps we are taking into account here The need to keep in mind that sometimes when you give people an inch, they take a foot, maybe. Thanks, everyone.